I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Right after the Celtics punched their ticket back to the Eastern Conference Finals after an out-of-this-world historic performance from Jason Tatum, he finishes with 51 points. 51 big ones. And it could have been more if it wasn't such a blowout for the Celtics. The most now points ever in a Game 7. He just beat out Steph Curry from a couple of weeks ago when they played the Kings. Just unbelievable performance with the way that he had struggled throughout this series. I thought those late shots, and you heard me the other night talk about it, I thought those late shots would carry over, and they did, and then some. But when he said, humbly, I'm one of the best basketball players in the world, I felt he was in a really good place. You don't say that if you're not in a really good place after really struggling, and we saw him carry this over into the Game 7. It was remarkable. I mean, that was a phenomenal performance, one of the best performances I've ever seen at the Garden. That was just absolutely insane. More on Tatum in just a second here. We'll also chat with Chad Finn from The Globe on the biggest story right now in Boston media, the situation with Toucher and Rich over on 98.5. Plus, we'll get Chad's reaction, of course, to Game 7 and some of the thoughts on the Red Sox and the Nesson booth as well. But let's get back to Tatum here. Just unbelievable, jaw-dropping performance. The 46-point game in Milwaukee, I said at the time, and I continue to say, I thought that was the most important game of Tatum's career, but this was the best game of his career. Like, that was important because you lose that game to the Bucks last year without Chris Middleton. You have real questions about the organization, right? So that was more important. This was his best one. 51, 13, 5, 2. And how about this? He had no turnovers. He didn't turn the ball over the entire game and he was handling it the whole time. We've seen Tatum throughout his career. Now he's been much better this postseason compared to last postseason as it pertains to the turnovers. He didn't turn the ball over the entire game. He had the ball in his hands the whole game. And I mentioned the fact that he now has the most points in the histories of Game 7, which think about this. The NBA has been around a long time. He has the most points ever, ever in Game 7. 
He's also the fourth Celtic to ever go for 40 and 10 in a postseason game, joining Larry Bird, Paul Pierce, and John Havlicek. I should say in a game seven. Larry Pierce and Havlicek, the only other Celtics to go for 40 and 10 in a game seven. Jason Tatum's now in that crew, and he scored 51. He didn't just have 40 and 10, he went for 51. 60.7% from the field. He was 17 of 28. He was 6 of 10 from deep, 60%. And how about this one? He was a plus 33. Plus 33 in this game was Jason Tatum. When he was on the court, they outscored Philly by 33 points. That's how dominating Jason Tatum was, and he completely broke Broke the Philadelphia 76ers defense, which we'll get into in just a second here. But this is one of those games that makes you think this is like a hero-like performance in the city. I think of the Pierce 41, as I told you about, Tatum's own 46. But after hitting those big shots in game six, to follow it up with this type of performance, man, holy shit. That was just absolutely incredible. And I get sort of, I didn't, of course, witness the Bird-Dominique game. And the Pierce one, there was like a back and forth with LeBron in the third quarter. The Tatum just completely put these guys away. And if the Celtics go on now to win a championship, we're going to circle back to the end of game six and this game seven performance, right? He didn't just snap out of his funk. He had one of, if not the best game sevens we've ever witnessed from a Boston Celtic, which is saying something that Jason Tatum after, think about where we were, just what? Three days ago, when we're talking about Jason Tatum and we're thinking about him through the first three quarters and he's one of 13, and you're thinking to yourself, what are we going to talk about if they lose this game? Does Tatum have it in him? Are we still a little bit away from Tatum getting to that level? And then he hits the big shots at the end of game six and he follows it up with 51 points to close out the Philadelphia 76ers who have the MVP on the other side. And the reason you know this game is so special is he did something that Steph Curry does to defenses. And I kind of alluded to this, but he destroyed their defense. They had to change everything they were doing schematically in the third quarter. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. Of course, the third quarter is when he broke it open with the 17. So I just want to run through some of this because I want to relive some of the best plays we saw from Tatum because it's really tough to narrow it down. But right away, you knew that he was here to play. You knew that he was ready to go because he froze and beat a little hesitation, gets to the basket 6-2. And then he hits a short mid-ranger over Tobias Harris to make it 15 to 12. More on the mid-ranger in a second, because when he hit that, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, okay, he's hitting some twos outside the restricted area, something we've been wanting to see. He needs to hit some tough twos, so he hit one early, and I thought that could be a good sign. Then he got to the line after a foul. He got Harris on him, which is a mismatch. He hits one of the two free throws, drives by Melton. He really destroyed Melton in this game as well, in addition to everybody else on the court. Then he posted up on Melton, okay? He made a 26-20, scored on Melton in the post. The smaller defender, he took him down there. Then he posted up on Melton again to make it 35-28. He missed, or 35-27, rather. He missed one of the two free throws. But this is something I was calling for. Hey, can they get Jason Tatum the ball in the post? Because Tatum this season has been really good in the post. On the season, he was 40 of 72, which is 55.5%. 1.22 points per 100 or 1.22 points per possession, which is in the 94th percentile. So Tatum, it's not like you're going to use this a ton, but when he gets these smaller defenders on him, go down in the post and the Celtics did it on back-to-back possessions in this game. And Tatum got three points in those two possessions, easily could add four if he just made the free throw. So that's something they can go to. And, and Tatum's huge, right? He's like six foot ten. He's going to have smaller defenders on him a lot, especially if it wasn't a guy like Tucker who's really strong. 
Melton is not nearly as strong as Jason Tatum. Take him down there and punish him. And he did this in this game. And this is a theme of Tatum's performance, hunting and going after mismatches. Then he had a couple of nice passes, found Rob on a lob. As I mentioned, he had the assist too, made it 35-31. Then he found Rob on the roll to make it 35-30. Oh, by the way, just so I don't forget this, I don't understand, like, Robert Williams is getting the ball at the top of the key sometimes. He's getting the ball, like, in the short corner. I don't know why they continue to do this. It's really a bizarre thing. But nonetheless, I don't want to complain too much about this game. But anyway, then he drove by Harris to make it 40-39. to Again, Harris is too slow for him. Then he jabbed and he spun around Harris, got to the basket to make it 42-39. He had another mid-ranger over Melton. He got away from Tucker, gets to the free throw line, tied things up. He got by Max. He finished over him from floater range, an actual floater from Jason Tatum, right? So at halftime, he had 25 points at halftime. And so the twos outside the restricted area, this is something that we've been harping on throughout the season and throughout the postseason in particular. Games one through six. So between the restricted area and three-point territory, Tatum had been 13 of 36, which is 36.1%. Horrible, right? How did he finish in this game? Seven for 12 58.3%. That is so fucking big that he can hit those tough contested twos because sometimes you're not going to get all these easy opportunities. And what we saw last game, he was one of five in the restricted area. So he was smoking those layups and he was trying to finish over Embiid. He's trying to finish around too many guys at the rim. If you can stop at a little floater or when you get the space, just take that little mid-ranger. That's so important that Tatum was willing to take those shots because he wasn't willing to take those throughout the regular season and throughout the postseason. He didn't want to take them. Today, it's almost like he realized, I need to take them. And what he did is it opened up his three-point game for later on in the game. So, And it was also imperative that he got off to the quick start, right? He has 11 points after the first quarter, and he had three points in the previous three first quarters. So you needed that to happen. Tatum certainly did that. So early in the game, it was taking the tough twos. It was making sure that he got off to a quick start. And then the third quarter came where you knew that Jason Tatum was going to have a good second half based on the way that he played in the first half. It felt like he really had everything going. A couple of nice passes to Rob, getting downhill, hitting floaters, hitting mid-rangers, and you felt like, okay, he's going to have a big second half. But did I predict that he was going to have this type of explosion? Certainly not. So right away, he gets a mismatch on Embiid, gets to the basket, he makes it 59-55, okay? So I'm thinking to myself, okay, here we go. They've actually pushed the button. They're taking advantage of the mismatch. They are mismatch hunting. They are going after Joel Embiid. Tatum saying, hey, Joel Embiid, come on out here. Come on out my island, and I'm going to take you to the basket. Come on out here. So I'm thinking to myself after he does that once, okay, this is open now. This is open because Doc's not going to make an adjustment right away. He's going to see how this works out, which that's a risk that you're going to take, right? The way that Tatum was going, that's a very risky proposition. So if they're going to do that, if they're going to switch, they're going to let Embiid switch onto Jason Tatum. The answer is very simple. Spam that shit. And that's exactly what the Celtics did. They spam the fuck out of that because next time down, Tatum gets a switch on a beat again. He steps back, hits a three, 62-55. What happens the next time down the court? Oh, he gets another switch on a beat and they stick with it. What's he do there? Step back, sidestep three, 65-55. He actually takes him all the way to the other side of the court, right? He goes to the lane. He's like, "Ah, I'm not sure about this. Goes to the other side of the court, hits a three. Next time down, he gets the switch again. Four straight possessions. Joel Embiid on Jason Tatum on an island. You almost felt bad for Embiid at some point. You're like, this guy is just going to get abused again. Tatum cooks him, gets to the free throw line, hits both, makes it 65 or excuse me, 67-58. So four possessions in a row. 
Embiid gets switched on Tatum, and what does Tatum do? 10 points and four possessions. Absolutely ridiculous, right? So then Doc says, okay, timeout. I need a timeout here. They switch the coverage. So what they do then is they start to blitz Jason Tatum. So they blitz him, and what that leads to is Al is playing four on three, right? Because Tatum makes the right basketball play. And this is why I compare it to Steph Curry. This is what teams used to do to Steph Curry. Go back to the first finals he played against the Cleveland Cavaliers. This is what they did. They did everything they possibly could to get the ball out of Tatum's hands. So Tatum finds Al. Al is playing four on three. And the guy they leave open is Jalen Brown. (laughs) So Jalen Brown gets a wide open three. He makes it 73-58. Next trip down the court. Yeah, guys, let's blitz again because they're just going to keep doing it, which I love. This is something the Celtics don't ordinarily do. When you find something that works, keep scratching that itch. They did that. So they doubled again. Tatum finds Al. Al again is playing four on three. He kicks it to Jalen Brown. Jalen is wide open. Jalen Brown just made second team All-NBA. Jalen Brown just qualified for the Supermax. And because Tatum has this defense completely flummoxed, they are leaving that guy open, Jalen Brown, who for large stretches of this postseason has been the best player on the Celtics. They are leaving that guy open because they have no answer for Tatum. What does he do? He knocks down another open three to make it 76-58. Then Tatum comes down the court again. He drives on Maxie, rather. He gets that switch, and instead he gets to the free throw line. He misses one of two, but he gets right to the free throw line because Maxie is a smaller defender. Tatum takes him down, right? With Embiid, couple of times he goes by him. He's switching it up. He's hitting some step backs. But with Maxi, the smaller defender, he says, OK, I'm just going to get to my spot. I'm going to get to the basket. I'm going to get to the free throw line. Right. Then later on in the fourth quarter, finds Brogdon in transition. Just a heads up pass from Tatum, 93-65. And that's the thing. He had everything going in this game. Then he got another switch on Embiid, which <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but he got switched on Embiid again. Goes by him, 95-70. Then he drove past Melton, who was trying to like push up on him. And Melton had given him some trouble throughout this series. So that's why I think he took him in the post because he had really got underneath him, kind of bothered his dribble at times, but he took him in the post in the first quarter of this game to Tatum with Melton. And then later on, he was just driving past him at an easy basket. Then Maxi on him again, gets to the cup, makes it 99-74. And then he had the three at the end to get the 51 to make it 102-76. And this is what is in this guy. This is how talented Tatum is. And I really, truly believe embracing the mismatch hunting That's something that I totally love, the ability to hit the tough twos. I thought that was the biggest difference in this game for Jason Tatum. Obviously, he came out with a ton of energy, and he had a massive first quarter. That's different from the previous three games. But the two big things to me from this game, besides just the overwhelming performance that he had against this Philly team, was the ability to hit the tough twos early, and then in the third quarter saying, you know what? Let's go after the weak link that they have defensively. And there's a bunch you have, but especially just going after Embiid. And remember, this guy's the MVP. That's why I really wonder. And I get it. It's a regular season award. Can Joel Embiid ever be the most valuable player in the NBA? No, because he has a fatal flaw. Jason Tatum doesn't have a fatal flaw. And I'm not like going into this whole thing about the two players, but it's like you can literally take Joel Embiid. Like you have to design your defense at times to protect Joel Embiid. As great as he is, and we saw him in the first half as a shot blocker, they just put him on an island and they completely expose him. Just incredible, incredible stuff from Tatum. Like if you watch this game today, which everybody listening to this podcast, of course, did, you'll never forget it. Just absolutely incredible stuff. And just the irony, right, that he does this on the 76ers, which, by the way, thank you very much again, Danny Ainge, for liking Jason Tatum more than Markel Fultz. The 76ers, the team that the Celtics trade with, 
Philly goes up to one to take Fultz. The Celtics go back to three and they take Jason Tatum. This guy does it to that team. It's just special. And that's sometimes why we get aggravated with Tatum, right? Because we know, and not to say that he's going to have this type of game every night, but we know this is in him. And then you have to reflect for a second and think to yourself, hold on. I know he's 25 right now, but he's technically only in his 24-year-old season. He's still pre-prime and he's able to do this. But man, that was just an unbelievable performance. Another guy I wanted to mention is Jalen, because Jalen, obviously, he didn't have the Tatum game. Who could, right? But he and Tatum kept him in the game in the first half, I felt like. Not kept him in the game, but they were carrying the team, I should say. He had nothing from White and Brogdon in the first half. Now, Brogdon got it going in the second, but in the first, they had zero combined points, and White was a minus seven, which was the worst on the court at that particular point in time. So it was your superstars that kept you alive. And Jalen, casually, because of the Tatum game, the 51, Jalen had 25 points, he had six rebounds, he had two assists, he had two steals, and he had two blocks, and a couple of big buckets early to get this team going. But really what I thought with Jalen, which was interesting, he gets the flagrant on Harden, which apparently he's not wearing the mask again. The one time he's not wearing the mask, he gets hit in the face, he's bleeding, and he gets to the free throw line after they review it, Harden hit him in the face, he hits the two free throws, and I felt like that was sort of a rallying cry for this team, because you could actually hear Marcus Smart on the broadcast yelling at Scott Foster like he can't keep doing this. And Smart was alluding to the fact that he was using his elbow sort of like as a wing, right? Like he was hitting guys in the face throughout the series, hitting guys in the body to create separation throughout the series. But this time he just kind of slapped Jalen Brown in the face and Jalen was bleeding. So I really felt like that got this team going because of the energy, the guys rallying around Jalen. So after that flagrant foul, it's 35-27 at the time. Jalen hits the two free throws, 35-29. Then the next time down, we alluded to the play. Tatum finds Rob for a lob, makes it 35-31, and then Jalen gets a steal, and he goes the other way, makes it 35-33. So that sort of galvanized the team, and the crowd really got into it after they saw James Harden hitting Jalen Brown in the face. And then after that, there was another Jalen play where Niang... Jalen goes like oh, into the 76ers bench. He's trying to get back the other way as the C's are going up on a fast break. Niang legitimately grabbed his knee. Niang is on the bench and he grabbed Jalen's knee. Like that was a dangerous play. And look, Jalen didn't get hurt or anything along those lines. But Jalen turns around right away and he starts going at it with the Philadelphia 76ers bench, which to me, wouldn't you do the same thing? Like the guy just grabbed your knee. That's as cheap as it fucking gets. You can't grab a guy's knee when you're on the bench. He could have injured Jalen Brown. So Scott Foster had already given Jalen Brown a T because he didn't see what happened on the bench. So he gives Jalen Brown a T and they deem it unnecessary taunting. So first of all, you could argue that Niang should have been kicked out of the game. I mean, you're on the bench. You can't grab a guy's knee. But secondarily, If Scott Foster doesn't make that original call on Jalen Brown, there's no way that should be a T. How can that be unnecessary taunting? So a guy grabs you in the knee when he's not even in the game and he should be allowed to get away with it. It's just ridiculous to me. But again, that was another thing that I felt like that galvanized this team and it really gave them energy. And so that to me, those two plays in particular really gave the Celtics life. And if you look at it, I mean, they basically beat the shit out of them after that particular point in time. But I thought this team really showed maturity, right? They got some bad whistles early, and Jalen got some unfair plays on him. But the other thing that I would say just about Jalen is, with this Celtics team, one of the things we've been looking for is sort of that player with an edge, right? A guy that can play with edge. And Jalen in this game was this guy. And I'm not saying he is this guy on a game-to-game basis, but you could tell when Jalen first got hit by Harden, 
And then secondarily, when you had the play with Niang, Jalen was pissed off and it felt like the guys really rallied around that. And he was not happy whatsoever. I wouldn't be either, but I do feel like they need that edge. And Jalen going right back at the Philly bench, I felt like that kind of gave the Celtics the energy that they needed. And in terms of the maturity, I mentioned the whistles. Jalen had the ball go off a defender and they called it off Jalen. And then you had that Derek White play where he didn't foul James Harden. Harden got to the free throw line. The crowd was restless. And you're kind of feeling like, okay, maybe this is part of that whole pregame report. Remember, Adrian Wojnarowski from ESPN had reported that an interesting dynamic approaching Celtics Sixers Game 7, per sources, NBA's officiating game report shared with teams from Game 6 revealed a significant difference. 13 officiating errors on the Sixers, 4 to Boston. Those include calls or non-calls. So first of all, I think this is bullshit to put this report out right before the game. It's almost like, I don't know, Doc Rivers fed it to him because Doc is answering questions about it prior to the game. He said, analytically, we won the game by 20 or whatever. No comment. Talking about game six, right? So it's, I thought it was just ridiculous that this report was out there. And I did feel like early, it did feel like the Sixers are getting some really advantageous calls. And Doc historically complained. I'm not telling you that Tatum doesn't complain about calls, but we know this when Doc was the coach of the Celtics. They complain like crazy, and Doc did as well. So I thought it was good that the Celtics sort of handled those in a mature fashion because we've seen it before. They get too caught up in the officials. They didn't in this game tonight, even with everything that was at stake. Okay, the other thing I want to mention is after the first quarter, the defense was absolutely outstanding. They finished with a 95.7 defensive rating in this game. Al was flying around, blocking Joel Embiid again. Jalen Brown was getting blocks at the rim. Jason Tatum was getting blocks at the rim. They were just everywhere. Marcus Smart was doing Marcus Smart things. Jalen had a really good game individually, defensively as well. And if you just look at it, so the Celtics, this is now the fourth time in the series, all wins that the Celtics have held the 76ers to a defensive rating that would have been the best in the NBA. Okay, so the Cavaliers led the league this year at 109.9. Celtics in this game, 95.7. Game 2, 91.6. Game 3, 106.3. Game 6, 89.6. So it's as if they could do this on a more consistent basis, right? Because you look at some of these other games, the loss to Atlanta in Game 3, 125. The loss in Game 5 to Atlanta, 125.3. The Philly loss in Game 1, 129.3. Philly lost in game four, 122.1. Philly lost in game five, 121.1. The Spurs, by the way, they had the worst defense in the league this year at 119.6. So the Celtics, it's so crazy. They play like the best defense in the NBA four times against Philly. They win all four games. And then they have all these games where they play worse than the worst defense in the NBA. Sometimes it can be infuriating, but what we saw is they're capable of playing that type of defense, okay? And so another note on this is you've officially ended another core group of players. The Nets did not recover from whatever the Celtics did to them last year where Jason Tatum just completely outplayed Kevin Durant, the whole Kyrie situation. You know, I felt like Kyrie really quit on that series after the game one. And now Philly's done. Harding goes for nine points. Embiid goes for 15 on five of eight shooting. So the Celtics' two best players, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, score 76. Philly's two best players, Harden and Embiid, go for 24. So the Celtics' best two players outscored Harden and Embiid by 52 points. That's just a statement in this game. Doc's probably gone. He's now 17 and 33 in elimination games. We had that conversation with Raheem Palmer the other day. And after he said, I'm not sure he's safe. I'm, I'm with Raheem now. Like, there's no chance that Doc's back. after. How could you bring him back? I mean, and 
it's not as if Doc's like, the, he hasn't won a championship since 2008. We're seeing all these coaches being fired, whether it be Nick Nurse, whether it be Mike Budenholzer, Monty Williams just got fired, and Monty Williams had his issues in that Phoenix series. I don't want to get into that, but you get my point, is it's really tough to bring Doc back after a collapse like this. And who knows? Like, if Harden's gone, we've heard all this Houston stuff, who knows what happens with Embiid? Is he that next disgruntled superstar that wants to get out? So they have completely ruined the Philadelphia 76ers after just ruining the Brooklyn Nets last year. Okay, I do want to get to one other note before we get to Chad. This is the most attached I've been to a Boston team. And I believe that's why we get so worked up when they have these brutal losses. And we get so excited like we are today after an incredible win, right? I've just been so invested in this group. And I'll tell you why. I've been more invested in them than other sort of teams here. So I loved those Patriots teams, but I would even say for them, I was more invest- uh, I was more invested partially to the second dynasty than the first dynasty. Okay, now the first thing is I was young when the first dynasty occurred, and it just sort of happened. But there was no buildup to the first dynasty, right? There weren't really difficult losses. And I get historically for the organization there were, but I'm just talking about that group of players, right? So you had the whole 96 Super Bowl run and then a couple of playoff trips and they fell off, right? Pete Carroll before Bill Belichick. And then in 2001, there wasn't like a ton of scar tissue with that group. We had never seen Brady play, right? In a Patriots uniform prior to 2001. So when he starts, they start winning and you just feel like this is what it's going to be for a while, right? And all of a sudden you had Tom Brady. So it wasn't like, hey, Tom Brady had all these difficult losses early on in his career, kind of like Peyton Manning. It wasn't like that. It was just like, okay, all of a sudden you're winning Super Bowls left and right. So you didn't have those difficult losses. And then the second dynasty, I was personally, of course, older And there were some scars there. The undefeated season, losing to the Giants. The second Super Bowl to the Giants. 06 to the Indianapolis Colts when you had that huge lead in Indy. You would have won the Super Bowl that year because the Bears were the team that represented the NFC. And it had been 10 years since they first won a Super Bowl. So I really wanted Tom to get another one. And he finally did in 2014, right? But after that, you felt like they're going to win at least one more. And they certainly did, right? Because they won in 16 and they won in 18. But you felt like, okay, after they win in 14, they're at least winning another one. So that to me, even that second dynasty team, I've been more emotionally invested in the Celtics team with the Red Sox. 2003 was crushing, but then they won right away. They went in 07 again. Of course, they went in 04, as I mentioned, they went in 07, they went in 13 and they went in 18. So I know a lot of you listening, older Red Sox fans, I didn't have that scar tissue, right? When I was growing up in the nineties, they were not great, but then Right when the 2000s sort of changed, they bring in Theo Epstein, they sort of turn this thing around. So I didn't have a lot of losing experience with the Red Sox. So that team, I didn't have sort of the emotional attachment. I was pumped when they won, but I didn't have the losses, right, on my resume personally as a fan of these teams, right? The 08 Celtics, it was more about the external moves, right? You bring in Garnett, you bring in Ray, and Garnett is my favorite Celtics this century, but... That group together, they didn't really go through tough losses, right? Before they won the championship, they won it in their first year. They had individual scar tissue, did Pierce with the Celtics that we had. But Garnett and Ray, you didn't have any of those shared experiences with those guys, right? I guess the Bruins would be close because they got the one in 11, though. And then sure, 2013 sucked, 19 sucked as well. They really should have won in 19. And this year, obviously, a massive gut punch. But they got one. They got their one in 11, right? The Celtics, this core group, they don't have one. And they've built up all these scars as they've been knocking on the door. You think about the 18 playoff run, even though they were not beating the Warriors if they made it to the finals that year because they had Durant and Curry, they lost that game seven to LeBron where LeBron had 35. 
and this is with a young rookie and Jason Tatum, and you had a young Jalen Brown, and you were thinking, this is going to happen sooner rather than later because you're going to get a healthy Kyrie and a healthy Gordon Hayward back, right? So they made it all the way to Game 7, still had a chance to make the finals, but you're going to get Kyrie and Gordon Hayward back. So you felt really good about where the organization was. And then what happens? The Kyrie experience where Hayward comes back, but he's clearly not the same guy, not even close to the same guy. And you have the whole Kyrie thing where he's lying to the fan base, saying the two max slots to Kevin Durant at the All-Star game. And then he kept telling us that, hey, we'll be fine in the playoffs. We'll be good in the playoffs. This is where I show up. Okay. And remember, you had this whole controversy with him and Jalen. And I know that they're on good terms now, but Jalen would call out Kyrie. He's the only guy that had the balls to, quite frankly, do that. And Jalen was coming off the bench. It was just a mess, remember? So they swept that bad Indiana team. They take game one from Milwaukee, but then they lose four straight. And Kyrie is like waving off guys to cover Giannis. And Kyrie was so bad in that series. He goes six of 21 and one of seven in his final game as a Celtic. He went four for 18 in game two. And then he leaves. And you felt like, okay, you're going to be better. But then Al leaves too. So you're like, I don't know. How is the Celtics team going to be? And then they have this season where they go to the Eastern Conference Finals in the bubble. And then what happened? They had no answer for Bam in that series. He had the game ceiling block on Tatum in game one. You lose that one. And we'll get into a big preview on the heat in a couple of days here. But you had the whole blowout in the bubble. Remember, Marcus Smart is throwing trash cans around. Gary Washburn had the reporting on that. And they have to have this team meeting into the wee hours of the night to sort of sort through all this. And then you lose to the heat which I felt like the Celtics were the more talented team, maybe from a maturity level, they weren't there yet, but Bam goes for 32 in the closeout game. And that was sort of a gut punch, right? You were just coming off the whole COVID situation. You felt like you were going to the finals and you get beat by a team that we thought was inferior, that Heat team, you can't get it done there. So that was really difficult. And it felt like maybe a change was needed, right? But they come back with pretty much the same team. They add Evan Fournier at the deadline the next season. And he does really nothing after he was traded here. And in fairness to him, he was dealing with the COVID situation and all that. But then you're looking at it and you weren't playing Kemba all season and back-to-backs with the hope that he'd be healthy for the postseason. Jalen goes down in that series against the Nets. Kemba gets hurt in that series against the Nets. And then you get hammered four games to one and you were a seven seed. Like you were not a good team the following season after you made it to the Eastern Conference Finals in the bubble. And you felt like major changes were needed, right? Because at that point, you're thinking, how good is this team going to be? Like, you know, you want to build around Jalen and you want to build around Jason Tatum. But at that particular point in time, a lot of the narrative was, hey, can these guys play together? Now, I always thought that was a stupid thing, because if you looked at the numbers, they're always good with those two guys on the court. It's not a perfect fit, but it's a pretty damn good fit. You're not going to find many that are better than that fit in terms of Jalen and Tatum. But you were wondering, can this team be a contender again? So Brad's out, you bring an email. And you felt like that move was necessary. Brad's voice was probably hollow at this point. You know, he was there forever. And it felt like people were sort of not listening to Brad anymore, right? So Brad takes over in the front office. And that was even questionable because remember, Mannix had the reporting at the time that, hey, Sam Presti could be interested in coming in for this job. And then you have the whole situation where Brad just gets the job. And you think, wait, can Brad do this job? He's never worked at a front office. He's only been a coach. And he goes and he brings back Allie, gets rid of Kemba, which is the first thing he needs to do, get rid of the contract. And we knew the knee was bad. Al was outstanding. Then Brad makes the move at the deadline to bring in Derek White. And you go all the way to the finals. You're the best team in the NBA. You have the Golden State Warriors on the ropes, up two games to one. And what happens? Curry goes nuts. The Celtics outscore 28 to 19 in that fourth quarter. 
And it felt like at that time, when they tied the series up 2-2, it felt like it was over. And Curry was the best player, but you were right there, two wins away from a championship. Tatum only had the 13 points in game six. He was six of 18 from the field. He had five turnovers. He just wasn't ready for it at that particular point in time. So it was just crushing. Even after that game four loss, it felt like the next two losses were sort of in slow motion. You felt like it was going to happen. And it was just, that was another one, just like the bubble loss. It was just a very difficult loss for this Celtics team. Just to go through it, even though you still felt like, hey, they're going to make big runs here. What happens? You have the whole Eme situation. It's so late in terms of when the season is going to start. You can't even promote Will Hardy because Will Hardy has already got the gig in Utah. So then you bring in Joe Mazzula, who was already with the team, of course, but he was not, he was an assistant, but he wasn't one of the lead assistants, right? So you go 21 and five, you're feeling great. And then the defense isn't great. You have these lineup issues throughout the season and you're just not feeling great, right, about the team. And then we saw what happened throughout this Philly series and they finally get over the hump in this game seven today. So it's sort of the, this is why I have an emotional attachment to this team more so than some of these other teams, is you feel like you've gone through these battles with this team. We've lived it so often, where the Celtics have been so close last year, so close in the bubble, that they're right there, that they're right there. And this is why this win, this Game 7 win, is so rewarding, because you've gone through all these losses. Now the question's going to be, can this team play more consistently against this Miami Heat team? Because it doesn't matter what Miami does during the regular season. We just saw it doesn't really matter who plays for them. As long as Jimmy Butler and Bam are there, this team is going to be formidable. And it's a rematch. You know, they're going to be pissed off. The Celtics, I would hope, would feel like, okay, like we should have beat them in a shorter series last year. There's no reason for that thing to go to game seven. But I can't wait for the Heat and the Celtics. Like I said, we'll have a full breakdown of that or a preview, I should say, in just a couple of days here. But man, I just got to breathe after that. Game seven was insane. And that was one of my favorite parts. Like game six, you sweated it out. Game seven was the Tatum game. This will be the game we always remember that Jason Tatum had where he made our lives easier in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter, when this thing was already over. What a win for the Celtics. Now they move on. Got a couple of days off. You got Monday and Tuesday off before you get ready for the Eastern Conference Finals again against the Miami Heat. Just real quick on that. I'm not going to get into details, but Doc Rivers coached out Coach Missoula for a good portion of the series, the first five games. <laughs> now you got to deal with Eric Spolstra. I mean, come on. This is just... That is something. A rookie head coach, 34-year-old head coach, has to go against the best coach in the NBA. Unbelievable. But hey, cannot wait for Wednesday. The Celtics, they have Tatum. They have Brown. They're ready to roll. I cannot wait for this one. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Chad Finn from The Globe. We'll get into the biggest story right now in the Boston media. We'll also get his reaction to Game 7, get into some socks as well. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe, it is Chad Finn. Has a story out right now. Will 98.5, the sports hubs, Toucher and Rich ever be the same? We'll get into that story in just a little bit. But Chad, I was just talking about this Celtics Game 7 win. And I feel like Tatum had the incredible performance last year against Milwaukee. But 51 
in a Game 7, the most ever in the history of Game 7s. There's been a lot of Game 7s in the NBA, and after how poorly he had played throughout this series, he hits the big shots in Game 6, but man, what was your reaction watching Tatum in this game? This was, to me, the best game he's ever played. You know, everybody's going to talk about the 51 in Game 7, Brian, but I'm going to think of it as 67 in the last five quarters of the series. Mm. Um, I don't know what switch flipped in in uh four minutes left or whatever it was in game six but uh we got the best of jason tatum and i imagine you feel the same way uh this really ought to kill all the crap narratives about him that uh whenever he has a bad game and he certainly had a few in the series you'd get the the conversation of uh well did they you know can he is he the guy that can put them over the top is he uh a real uh first team all nba player uh, and the, the measuring stick around here is impossible because it's always, well, Larry Bird did this, Larry Bird did that. It's Larry Bird. That's why you, you, you know, you should ask, uh, you should, you should learn from the Paul Pierce career on Tatum and Jalen too, where uh, it, it's a guy, it took a while. There were ups and downs. It wasn't a linear growth. Uh, and Pierce was drafted in what, 98, 98, 99. I can't, can't remember, but he didn't win a title until 2008 when KG and Ray Allen got here. And uh, I, I think, I, I just feel like it wasn't fair to Tatum to, to talk about him as somebody who was failing to become those guys at age 25. So this game tonight and the way he played over the last five quarters in a series of 67, uh, hopefully it makes all that go away for a long time. Although, you know, still two more series left here. Yeah, well, one of the things I often have to remind myself to the point that you're making is he's only in his 24-year-old season. And you see these guys, their first championships, like Steph Curry's came at 27, LeBron's came at 28, Michael Jordan's came in that 27, 28 range, right? It's very rare we see these superstars, with the exceptions of like going back to Magic and Bird in the early 80s, Tim Duncan in 99, the lockout year, he wins a championship. But it's very rare we see guys step right into the NBA and win championships in their first couple of years. So that's one thing I always have to think about with Tatum as... Because I'm watching them on a daily basis, right? So I get irritated at some of the things he did. But one of the things that I hope they carry over, Chad, from this game is we saw them posting him up. We saw him actually taking mid-rangers and floaters, things that he hadn't been taking really throughout the season. He had really turned into it. I know the Celtics are a very analytically driven front office. He turned into a guy that it was layups, it was threes, and it was free throws. And that middle game, which... We saw in the final session year, he didn't have it, right? And the Warriors kind of exposed him when it came to that. But in this game tonight, 7 of 12 on those twos outside of the restricted area, that's the thing to me where I hope they show Tatum this film and say, hey, if you do this in the first half, that three-point game that you have, it's going to open up in the second half. So I hope that's something he carries over into this Miami series because what we've seen throughout the history of the NBA in the playoffs, despite the boom with the three-point shot over the past decade or so, you do need to hit tough twos. You think about Kawhi Leonard with the Raptors. We think about Kevin Durant with the Golden State Warriors. You're going to have to hit those shots at some point in the postseason. And he certainly did in game seven. Right. It makes the game really aesthetically ugly when uh, you're a three-point based team and you're not hitting him earlier in the game because everybody's reaction is take it to the hoop. Get, you know, get, get, get some makeable shots here and get that rhythm. And then, you, you know, go back to the three-point line, team up then after you got a couple of you know, uh, numbers in the field goal category. Uh, we, you know, we know with Joe Missoula, and I'm sure we'll talk about him a little bit, but uh, very three-oriented. And the funny thing today was, I think they only had they only had five makes at halftime from three. It wasn't a lot. 
Um, obviously, Tatum uh, changed that in the second half, and uh, you know, everybody else got in on it too. Brogdon and White hit one, and Jalen hit a few, a couple of daggers of his own. But uh, I thought Tatum played a really intelligent game. Uh, he was he was quick when he had him beat on him. He didn't mess around. Yeah. He got tired of getting his shot blocked at the rim, and he just went at him. And he there were a couple of times where he got layups where just before Embiid could get there. And uh, I, I think in a way, uh, you look at Embiid just had a, a brutal game. I mean, I can't wait to read the Philly papers on Monday. Uh, he had a brutal game, and uh, I think they just wore him down and kind of broke his spirit a little bit. And Tatum was uh, Tatum was ruthless when he had Embiid on him this game. And uh, it's one more step in the growth, but it, it, it's also more confirmation that he's a guy who really does care, um, really gets it. You know, gets a little points oriented for short sometimes, but I, I, I think today is the greatest evidence we've had since game six against the Bucks last year that he's somebody really capable of stepping up in the biggest moments and he's going to have more like this. Well, and I was wondering, too, entering game six, would Joe Mazzula be more pliable with his lineup? Because basically all of us were calling for, hey, put Rob in the starting lineup because Doc had really taken advantage of that situation where they realized like early on in the series, especially game two, Rob was so dominant coming into those games. So Doc said, all right, I'm taking McDaniels out of the lineup so he can't hide a McDaniels. And then they were basically putting Niang on the court whenever Rob was out there. So it was sort of limiting Rob's impact, right? But then when you say, okay, let's start Rob and Tucker's already in the court. And I know he hit a couple of threes early in this game, but you're going to live with those. He can be that roamer. So I was just wondering for so long after game three, because Rob's minutes we saw were getting limited why don't you push that button? It took him so long to do it. And I'm not convinced that it was Missoula that came up with the idea to do that. I'm pretty sure it was somebody else with it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was somebody else in the organization, but that, that they actually made the switch. And so whether it's Missoula making the decision himself going forward or somebody nudging him in that direction, that part of it and Tatum coming alive, obviously, as you mentioned in the last five quarters, that to me was the two biggest developments because I couldn't believe like, Doc Rivers, who we've had our issues as with Celtics fans, he was coaching circles around Missoula in the final two games of the series. The only critique I would have in the game today is, I mean, come on, at the end of the half, no more Marcus Smart on Joel Embiid. Like the guy's given up like basically a foot. He's given up a lot of weight. And I, I didn't mind him like taking Grant out of the rotation, but maybe like a minute and a half at the end of the half, if you don't want to put Rob, uh, Rob on him, obviously, then you want to give Al a break. I mean, maybe trot out Grant there. That would be my only critique of Missoula really in this game. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, he took Al out right at the end of the first. I think he was trying to keep him from picking up a third foul, and rather than going yeah. to Grant, uh, it was Marcus. Which uh, I think Marcus wanted to get one flop in there on Embiid. It wouldn't be a wouldn't be an actual official <laughs> NBA game if he didn't try. But uh, I mean, it's been really interesting to hear the conversations about uh, how the the double bigs came to be because Scalabrini on his radio show, Sirius XM show, mentioned last week that he had talked to uh, Missoula during the season. It sounds like they have really good dialogue. Like Miz Missoula respects him because he's a player in the league and um, said, you got to go double bigs. You got to go double bigs. And he said, Missoula was adamant that they weren't going to. Uh, I don't know if it's because it seems like, uh, you know, Brad said something. Will Hardy called from Utah and said something. Damon Stoudemire called from Georgia and said something. But or, or it's Alan Marcus taking over as try head coaches in the last couple of games of the series. But yeah. somebody got through to him to change it. And the joy of the team, there was no concern about offending Derek White. You know, <laughs> it yeah. was 
we wanted to do this. Horford was so grateful to have some uh, help on Embiid. And you saw how the effect it had where he would back in, back in, bang into Al, and then Rob's lurking, and he would end up taking a fadeaway or something. Um, it really just it worked beautifully. And one hand, you give Joe credit for making the change. On the other hand, you wonder why it didn't happen sooner because it seemed pretty damn obvious. Yeah, and you can see, too, with Embiid especially, is they're thinking about it, right? Even if they don't know where Rob is, they're thinking about the fact, hey, is he going to come over and block my shot? So even it's like, all right, I'm getting my advantage on Al. When Rob's not in the court, he's not worried about Derek White or even Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown coming over and helping. But when Rob's on the court, he knows that guy has a seven foot six wingspan and he can jump incredibly fast, right? He knows that first jump is coming. So I do think it sort of freaks them out where it makes you think a little bit more offensively. And if you have to think when you're out there, if you're Joel Embiid or you're James Harden, it really hinders what you can do. And we saw it. But speaking of Tatum, I thought Jalen was outstanding in this game as well. He played really well. And I thought those two plays with the Niang thing, which is just completely Bush League. And of course, the flagrant on Harden, that sort of got the guys going. But if you juxtapose the performance from the Celtics superstars to the Philly superstars, I mean, it's just so sweet as a Celtics fan to see that because Harden had another stinker, which we've seen throughout his postseason career. And Embiid, who is the MVP, the guy had 15 points. And at the biggest moment in the biggest game, the one of the reasons the Sixers lost is he kept getting switched on Jason Tatum. They exposed the MVP's weakness. He cannot guard in space. And he was really toast. Yeah. And you know what? It, it was kind of under discussed in this series, but Celtics are a much better conditioned team. I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, uh, you know, Embiid's such a big guy. He's got kind of a history of wearing down late in series. And, and uh, you know, Harden seems to have uh, some extracurricular activities that uh, keep him <laughs> from being in peak NBA conditions sometimes. Uh, and that's why it was so reassuring. I don't know, so so good to see when in the second quarter, after kind of a sluggish first quarter, in the second quarter, Celtics just played with pace. Um, came out, pushed the ball, pushed the ball. Uh, it was you know, Marcus was kind of at the charge of it, but Tatum made a point to do it. I thought Jalen, like you said, had a tremendous game. He scored 23, but he was uh, he was deferential to Tatum at a couple of times. He had an open three on the late in the second half on the far left side of the court, swung it over to Tatum, trying to get him up to 50. Uh, and I, you know, it's kind of off the point here, but I think what we saw these last five quarters again uh is that uh there's really a ton of respect among the two best players on the Celtics team and that um I loved seeing after game six the Jalen's reaction to Tatum getting hot uh yeah because sometimes Jalen gets in mode like uh all right Jason's off I gotta take this take this game over and I kind of wondered yeah he, he would might might have been in his right to be frustrated that he wasn't the guy getting the shots there when Tatum was so bad and instead he was thrilled for his teammate and they both played like that today, and, uh, and those two guys are playing with that intensity, and Tatum's hitting shots like he was hitting shots. I mean, Scal said it after the game on NBC Sports Boston, but, um, you know, the, the, there's no stopping this team if they play like that. Yeah, and going to that game six thing that you mentioned, I love the embrace at the end of the game where they hugged, and you could tell, like, these guys, they really mean a lot to each other. Like, these guys really, really like playing together despite all the noise and the outside stuff. They really like playing with each other. All right, so let's get to your story. Will 98.5 The Sports Hubs, Toucher and Rich, ever be the same? So just to sort of give everybody an idea of what happened. So Toucher had been out for some time. He was dealing with a throat problem that had been affecting his voice. 
He took a leave of, yeah, in April, he took a leave of absence to receive treatment. And then he tweeted to complain that Rich had not reached out to him. He One of the tweets, they don't need me, cancer scare, and I don't hear a word for weeks. Then I reach out to them, nothing back. He then tweeted on May 5th, he actually had heard from Rich and John Wallach, who of course is the third guy on that show, does the updates. We hear him on the Celtics broadcast as well when Grandy's doing TV. So then on Thursday, Rich isn't on the show. Toucher's back. He says, the tweets were completely unfair. I talked to John. I talked to Rich. He had offered his connection at Dana-Farber because they were worried, of course, about cancer with Toucher. And he said he had offered these things. In retrospect, it was a stupid thing to do. I was sitting at home scared of all this happening, not that this is an excuse. So before we get into what happened on Wednesday, because that's a big part of the story as well, I don't know touch I don't know touch yeah I don't know Toucher or Rich personally and Toucher I'm glad it appears that he's doing much better because obviously that was a terrifying situation for anybody especially considering what he does for a living but to tweet out that he hadn't heard from them when he did I mean that just seems like for the other guys that's just an awful thing for somebody to do to them Yeah and he did it repeatedly um a couple of different days uh, in a couple of different ways and um, responding to people on Twitter, things like that. And um, it's, I mean, it's just bewildering how this all played out and uh, how it's still playing out because, yeah, he came on the air again the first day he was back Thursday um, and Rich wasn't there, uh, which we'll get into, but he uh, he didn't really apologize to Rich. He He acknowledged off the top of the show that, uh, he, what he said wasn't true and they'd reached out to him and, uh, um, but, you know, didn't really go into detail about what motivated him to do that. And, you know, Fred's gone through a lot lately. I mean, he's a, he's a broadcaster, uh, radio broadcaster, makes a lot of money, massive, massive ratings for over a decade. Um, and his felt like his career was in balance. He went through in uh, a divorce recently that he's talked a lot about on the air and the effects that's had on him, but it doesn't explain why he would do something like that, uh, you know, to people who, as it turns out, were there to support him and, you know, were offering up resources. Rich's wife, Mary, uh, had a cancer battle, a really scary one, a couple of years ago. Um, so that is something that uh, it really has an effect on on Rich when you talk about cancer and, and your your own scare and that sort of thing. And, you know, Fred, for Fred to do what he did and still not fully apologize, I think I, I can kind of understand, you know, the being in a lousy mental state, but I can't understand doing that. And uh, if I were in Rich's shoes, I'd be pissed too. Yeah, it just seems bizarre that you would do that to somebody if it wasn't true. I just, and like you said, I don't know what state of mind he was in, but it still seems like it's crazy that he would say that. All right. So they have this meeting with Beasley with Beasley 985's parent company. Rich and others accused, according to your story, accused Toucher of creating a hostile work environment. And Toucher was in on Thursday and Friday. Rich was off. Toucher is now off on Monday. So they could work together Tuesday, according to your report, if they actually come back together, if they actually remain co-hosts. So Tuesday is going to be a must listen either way. Monday will be as well. But what's your Best guess here. Do you think they'll be together again, or do you think it's too far down for that? My best guess, I, I feel like it's over. I don't know that because um, Rich, I reached out to multiple different ways over a couple of days last week, and he's usually really good about getting back to me, especially with you know ratings related stuff, things like that, or if 
uh, I have a question about something that was said in the show um, and nothing. And I reached out to Fred uh, via email. Um, didn't hear back from him either. Uh, one of the days of the week, I got uh, Rick Radzik, who's a program director over there. Uh, I think for the first story I wrote, just saying Fred was back. And uh, he gave me a quote, but he went uh, radio silent, so to speak, um, over the uh, Thursday and Friday. So I don't know if corporate's making those guys shut up or if they're uh, doing it on their own. But from everything I gathered and I wrote what I knew was 100 percent true, I, you know, I heard random inconsistent things about other stuff that happened in the meeting. So I didn't mention it. Um, but, uh, from what I gathered, I mean, Rich, Rich is furious and, uh, it seems like it's up to him whether, uh, whether or not the show continues, it doesn't sound like at least in the middle of last week, he was in the frame of mind to do that. Um, I know there was some, some frustration that day because they found out Fred was coming back at 1230 Wednesday afternoon. They thought, all right, everything's good. Uh, all, all fences have been mended. And then Rich calls in at 5.30 and takes a sick day. And uh, he's used two sick days, uh, burned off a couple of those to, to miss those last couple of days. And um, either, I don't know if it's a protest or he just doesn't want to deal with Fred right now or what it is. But it feels like that resolution has to come early this week. And uh, I couldn't tell you what it's going to be because I think only one person really knows. Yeah. So do you think they would choose one or the other or do you think it would be Rich would just leave the show? Boy, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I wrote it. You know, I, what I wrote was a column, which I, I'm the media columnist. And I, you know, so, you know, I have my opinion. I report to, but, uh, you know, I'm supposed to have my opinion in there after covering media in Boston for almost 15 years now, 2009. Um, and uh, I, I wrote at, at the start of the column that, I've never heard a radio show other than maybe Mike and the Mad Dog in New York in their heyday where the two hosts brought, like, the, the sum of the parts was far greater than what they are individually. Now, Fred and Rich are both good hosts. Uh, Fred's got a really droll sense of humor, um, but the show tends to go off the rails a little bit when it's just him and Wallach in a third voice. Uh, Rich loves the bits. Um, you know, he's a, he's a sports fan for sure and a big Celtics guy, but, uh, you know, he'd seems like sometimes he'd much rather do fart court than talk about uh what happened uh you know in the red good Sox segment game. though good it segment, is though. yeah it gets big <laughs> listeners from what i understand but um you know he's not he's not a sports guy sports guy and they're on a sports radio station so um he you know he's he's a little bit lost without fred too in terms of um you know getting the best out of the show where he comes up with these bits and they set up uh you know fred to be a wise ass and it works really well um, but, you know, if you don't like the guys you're working with, how much longer are you going to do that? And do you really do you want to do you, you want to set up this guy to get laughs so that uh, when you, you really want to jump across the table and strangle him? You know, I, I don't know. So, um, like I said, I think it's uh, I think it's really up to Rich how this proceeds. But no people over there aren't feeling really good about it. And they uh, you know, talk to a lot of people on air off. And they have no idea what his plan is, uh, whether this is a protest or whether um, he's legitimately serious about leaving. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because you mentioned it. They're a ratings monster and they've been working together for so long since 2009 at the Sports Hub. But even prior to that, as you mentioned, but you look at the spring book 
They pulled a 22.2 share. Their competition pulled a 5.5, the Greg Hill show, right? So they basically, they dominated until Kirk Menahan got to EI, and then Kirk was winning the ratings battle for a while. But after Kirk left and WEI moved on from Kirk, 98.5 took over again, and they've been running away with the ratings. Like, they're basically beating EI worse than they were before Kirk, right, when it was lopsided in 98.5's position, right? So Kirk comes in, and he's winning the ratings, but since Kirk left— it's worse than it was prior to Kirk, right? So I, I look at this whole thing and these two guys that have been so good for each other, as you mentioned, they play off each other so well. It's really different than any other show that we have here locally in town because most of the shows like Felger and Maz have crazy ratings. There's It's a sports show. It's, hey, here's our takes. Here's the calls. This is a very unique show. They come up with really creative ideas. So they're obviously like have to be in sync all the time putting this stuff together so what you reference Mike and the Mad Dog right there, but you also reference it in your story. What do you think it is about these hosts that have been together for? I know it's individual things, but these guys have had so much success for so long that it gets to this point. I mean, it's kind of crazy that they're there, right? Considering all that they've done together. I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend that I know the interpersonal workings of the show, but what do you think it is about these guys that like the huge personalities on radio like Mike and the Mad Dog that have been there forever. Is it just success? Like, is that sort of like what happens? Like these relationships just, it seems like they just sort of get tarnished through time after, I mean, they've almost been doing this for what? 15 years on the sports hub almost. Yeah. August, 2009 is when it became a sports station. It switched over from BCN and they were there. Uh, that was rock radio in Boston. They were there for uh, three years before that. And they worked together in Atlanta. So they've been together for, Around 20 years, I guess. I don't know the exact time, but it's been a long time. It's really worked. I mean, you mentioned the ratings last uh, period. They, I think they got a 25-6 in March. Um, you, you know, they were it's getting It's a great better. show. It's a great show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that uh, I know Rich promoted that as the highest ratings a radio show in Boston has ever gotten. I couldn't confirm it, so I didn't write that. But uh, that's where they stand. They have massive ratings and a huge audience and a loyal audience. Uh, and now it's at this point where it may break up and, you know, people get divorced, obviously it's sort of like that. But if you go back and look like at Mike and the Mad Dog during their run, I mean, there were a lot of times you'd watch the simulcasts and, uh, during the commercials, they wouldn't talk to each other. They didn't even look at each other. Um, and eventually they <laughs> broke up too. And the other thing is, I mean, in drive time, morning, afternoon drive, if you're really good and you're getting big numbers and the advertising's there. Uh, you're making a ton of money. And these guys are making a, a, a lot of money. You know, Fred's talked about how he doesn't really have it now because he went through a divorce. But um, uh, I, I know that, that they're really well compensated. And uh, uh, they were in, uh, Fred's talked about being in contract, contract negotiations right now. Uh, I think in the past that the two of them did their deal together. I don't know if they're going to do that now. I don't know how that'll, uh, how that'll play out at all. But you can set yourself up if you're good in drive time for a great life. And uh, I, I've kind of wondered, I, I, maybe this is true, maybe it isn't, but, you know, Rich has done so well. Uh, maybe he just doesn't want to deal with that anymore. You know, uh, mm. he, he, he's talked about things in his life where he's obviously living a little bit more of a high-end life than he did when he, uh, you know, when he was over at BCN. And, you know, maybe just things have changed that way where you don't want to get up at, 3.30 a.m. or whatever it is and coming and do that drive, uh, you know, the, the grind every day. And you know this, the, the 
thing I think listeners don't realize about sports radio is it is a grind. That four hours, it's hard to keep your energy up all the time. Um, you know, and for you, it was probably more than that doing the Red Sox games and stuff when you were at WEI. It, it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to keep that up, and it's especially hard to keep that up in those crazy morning hours. So, you know, maybe beyond the friction or worse that's going on with these guys right now, maybe they're finally just worn down from, you know, working in that window. It's crazy, and I, I can't wait to see what happens over the next couple of days. But it would be a shame if this is how it ends after how long those guys have been together and how successful they've been. I do wonder, like, you you look at the ratings. It doesn't look like the other station right now has a chance to compete with them in that area. But if it's just one of the two, I assume you would think that there would need to be a change on the other dial if they are going to compete with them, right? Like, do you think that they could compete with them if it's just the Greg Hill show as it's currently constructed, if it's w- only one of those two guys going forward, or is the gap just so wide that you couldn't envision that possibly happening? That'd be pretty interesting if they end up going head to head. I don't think that would be the case. Um, no, they like Hill AEI because he's uh, great with the advertisers, uh, great schmoozer. Mm. Um, and uh, I did yeah, their ratings are okay. I mean, they're not anywhere near like what Dino and Jerry were or what Kirk and Dino and Jerry were. And then Kirk and Jerry were um, when they came in and there was a real competition in that spot. You know, they EI won some books for, for a stretch and you know, nine, Sports Hub's uh, numbers were really good there too. But there was a time where uh, Kirk and Jerry were beating them um, for a good stretch. And uh, I don't think they're anywhere close to having the show that uh, can even think about doing that unless, uh, you know, unless on sports hub, one of those guys leaves the show that uh, ends up being what they go with, whether it's Fred and Wallach or Rich and Wallach um, starts to kind of gradually lose the audience because those parts aren't as good uh, in as a whole as they were before, but still uh, EI is in no position to challenge them right now with what they have. Uh, It just, that, that show uh, that show doesn't work in the morning. And I think it sets the tone for, you know, the the poor ratings and the shows that come afterwards. Yeah, it's a fair point. And the gap is really, really wide right now. But I thought Lou Fourier and Ottolini was working in Afternoon Drive. And uh, I think the last ratings, not, not to go off track here too much, but the last month of ratings uh, in the last book, they had like a 2-2. I mean, what Lou and Fourier and Megan got fell off huge. and. Uh, yeah, the, the tone is set in the morning, but I, I think they've made a lot of personnel mistakes over there uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah, so the move from that the afternoon show that it, it wasn't really even they weren't together that long. I mean, what, maybe a year and a half? Lou, Christian and uh, Megan and Mago. What was that like a year and a half before they gave up on that? Yeah, it wasn't too long. I mean, uh, they just didn't give Lou an extension, more or less. Right. The a budget thing and uh you know he handled that so gracefully that you know he's in the booth now and pops up in the afternoon show once in a while so i give him a ton of credit for the way that went down he's you know, really realistic about it you now and it has said that he uh was happy to get away from the negativity that you kind of have to have in that spot but um i thought that show worked she had good camaraderie with both of those guys and uh you know what i want from a sports radio show i just I don't want to be pissed off after I listen to it. I want to laugh. Um, I think Toucher and Rich does that. I think Lou, Megan, and Christian did that pretty well. And there are other shows in the market that do it as well. 
Um, and uh, but just some of the decisions lately have uh, have really gone in the wrong direction. Yeah, and Lou, to your point, he's making all these jokes about not having to talk about the Bruins' loss or the Celtics when he's doing the Nesson broadcast. So I appreciate that. I think Lou's really happy with the work that he's doing for Nesson and EI. And so I want to ask you about that Nesson booth because we chatted about it before they made the announcement. And I got to say, Chad, it's been awesome, the Nesson booth. Both Lou and Uke, I think, are great. And I know that They've sprinkled in a little bit of Middlebrooks, a little bit as Wake is sort of like the third man. But both Lou and Yuke, they're really good explaining what's actually happening like on the field. And both of them, I mean, you know, I would love this. They both love the advanced metrics. They get into the baseball savant stuff, which I, I actually love as well. But then you can just tell like how passionate they are too. Like Lou the other night when James Paxton was striking out all these guys and he's hitting 96, he's hitting 97. You could see like how excited he was about the game. So you ha- you're replaced... Yeah, and, and you're replacing legends, right? When we're talking about Eck and, of course, unfortunately, Remy, who passed away after the 2021 season, you're replacing guys that were there in the market for so long. I don't think you could ask for better guys taking over than what you and Lou have, be- have done. I think they've been outstanding. I mean, how? what have you thought of the broadcast so far? Am I too crazy or do you have a similar feeling? No, you know what? I've gotten really nice feedback about it. The one, The one that uh, I wasn't expecting was was last week, week before, I think it was last week where I got a ton of like messages, emails, um, you know, texts from friends, uh, a couple of messages on Twitter from people saying, I love you can wake together because you got the pitcher, uh, yeah. the, the pitcher hitter thing. And O'Brien for as much grief as he gets because he was a guy who replaced Orsillo and as a guy who, you know, they decided to keep over Orsillo. Um, He's really good at navigating that, and he's really good at navigating it under the the new uh, you know new restrictions that you have, where you don't have a lot of time to talk between pitches. Um, I, I listen on the radio sometimes, and it feels like uh, the the analyst, whether it's with Joe or Will or you know, Sean McDonough early in the season when he was on there, feels like they almost never finish a story because the game's gotten so fast now. Uh, and, and uh, I think on the TV broadcast, that hasn't been as obvious. Even when you have three people in there, they've really struck a good balance about when to talk and when not to and what to add. And um, yeah, I'm a big Middlebrooks guy, too. I think he's going to be really good at it. Uh, he doesn't have the reps that the other guy had. You know, you've got like 75 games last year and getting uh, the majority of them this year. And Lou's, I mean, Lou, I think did like the 2013 world series on the radio. So he's been off and on doing this for a long time. Um, so uh, those guys have more experience, but I, I like the group that they have. And I think about Lou um, kind of his career path. I mean, I think he started at Nesson right after his career ended and he would have been in line to be Jerry's eventual replacement or to be the guy in the, the, the booth. But, you know, he went to EI, he was with EI NBC Sports Boston and took a different path. But it feels to me like he's kind of back where he was supposed to be all along, um, being in the broadcast booth, talking about a game he really cares about. Local guy like Remy, who, um, you know, fans have an attachment to, hit a home run his first at bat at Fenway, you know. Uh, so I, I think this is working out as well as you could possibly have expected, given that you lost Jerry and X retirement was uh, uh, fairly unexpected. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed it. And by the way, just one quick note on the socks. I've enjoyed both those guys. Uke's awesome. I think Lou's awesome. It's it's been a lot of fun. And I've always been a fan of Obi. I think that he gets uh 
unfairly judged because you point out Ursula. I think Obi's awesome. I love listening to Dave O'Brien. Really, really, really good broadcaster. But Chris, yeah, pros pro. Yeah, Chris, Sale. How about this? I mean, look, Jansen ruined the weekend for the Red Sox. This guy is, and we're recording right now during the Red Sox Cardinals game, but they already lost the series because Jansen, after he got his 400 save, he decided to blow two saves. Saturday night, he's getting violations, all this different type of stuff. But Sale, two games ago against Philly, it was the fastball, right? He's sitting over 96. And then this game on Saturday, his slider's back. He gets 11 whiffs to put the metric man hat on for a second here, Chad, on 16 swings, like his... Yeah, his stuff was just devastating. And I'm starting to believe this is now two back-to-back starts. One, it's the fastball. One, it's the slider. He looks good on the mound. He sort of had his swagger back. So I'm starting to believe that Sale may be back to being a front end of the rotation guy. Am I crazy or are you starting to buy in as well? I'm starting. I drafted him on all my fantasy teams. Boston Red Sox beat writer league, Globe League, buddies from around here league. So I, I thought he was going to get it eventually straightened out. I mean, it feels like the beginning of the year, it was uh, even when he was getting, you know, got his ass kicked in his first start, gave up a bunch of home runs. Um, it was both a command and a control issue, which I think yep. both of those things came from just the inactivity over the last <laughs> how many years? I mean, it feels sometimes it feels like he hasn't pitched since the World Series in 2018, even though he was here in 19 for the most part. But um you know, he couldn't throw the pitch the same way twice and he couldn't throw it where he wanted to. And he smoothed that out. And you could see the other night, he's got his confidence back. He feels like the, he, he, he just the way he's carrying himself on the mound. I'm not like the uh, I'm not like the body language doctor or anything, but uh, he looks like a confident pitcher who gets, uh, you know, makes the call, gets the call, uh, throws the pitch and fully expects it to go where he's trying to put it. And he's got the velocity. He's got the stuff strikeouts have been there all year um I, I as long as you can keep him healthy knock on wood and keep him on the mound i think he's going to be a very good pitcher and somebody who just gets a little bit better and a little bit better here as we go yeah well i'll have to ask i'll have to ask the boss bill simmons about the body language because he's the body language doctor yeah so we'll have to we'll have to ask him to grade out the body language of chris sale all right so and i'm with you i, I like now i'm looking forward to watching chris sale pitch again which i think is awesome from a red sox fans perspective so and by the way big maple the other night the guy's throwing 97 98 i'm like what the hell this guy hasn't pitched for two years i had no expectations and he looked good as well so we'll see if he can do it in back-to-back starts as well but before i let you go so celtics heat it's going to be the tnt east the east is the tnt this year so I know it's obviously going to be Harlan, who's obviously outstanding. I mean, there was a big write-up. Uh, Brian Curtis had it in the ringer a couple weeks ago about the three great broadcasters right now in the NBA, Breen, Harlan, and Ian Eagle, right? They're all, yeah, they're, Breen is awesome. Bang, like, he's great. But so it's going to be Reggie Miller as the lead commentator, which I, I've never been a big Reggie guy. I don't get why that's their number one guy. Are they? Is it going to be, because last year, correct me if I'm wrong, it was a three-man thing for TNT in the conference finals, right? Like, I think they throw Stan Van Gundy in there as well, correct? So, will they have a three-man thing for this? Because you can't have Reggie as the only guy. He's, I mean, he's terrible. Like, the game that Jalen took over covering James Harden, it, it started right at the beginning of the game, and you could see he's picking him up full court. And in the second half, he's saying the big adjustment they're now making is putting Jalen on him. I'm like, Reggie, did you watch the first half, man? I just, I feel like he's asleep at the wheel sometimes. I'm not a big Reggie guy, so I... 
Look, I, I I feel like it'll be good if they Van Gundy sometimes like goes over the top, but I think Van Gundy does a good job sort of explaining the coach aspect to this. So is, is that sort of the plan for TNT, the three man booth again? Yeah, I think I, I I think it's just Reggie and Harlan. I'm not sure who they're adding. I haven't seen the uh, haven't seen their game plan on that yet. But you reminded me that one of the the the, the most ridiculous thing Reggie said in that game was I think Grant was defending Embiid and he's looking up at him, you know. And he goes six foot three, Grant Williams. I'm like, he's smaller. Than <laughs> I don't think he's a foot smaller than Embiid. But I, I, I got so many uh, messages about Mark Jones and Doris on the ESPN broadcast, and I thought they were being homers. And I didn't see it with Doris. I know she's about the biggest Tatum fan out there. I've talked to her about him a lot over the years. Uh, I thought Jones got influenced by the Philadelphia crowd a little bit, uh, but. As the series was going, uh, as the series was going on, I thought, you know, I'd rather hear Jones and Doris than I would having Reggie Miller anymore. And I love Harlan. I, I wish Harlan could just do it by himself sometimes. Um, but uh, I thought, you know, Mark Jones was just so uh, uh, not lopsided, but just kind of it was what he, the way he called things didn't seem like the way they should be called in a particular moment. So today. Um, now, I got word from somebody at ESPN this morning that it was uh, or late last night, actually, that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Breen and uh, uh, Jackson were going to get this game. And I think the, the response was hallelujah. You wish that th- those two guys and, and Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy in particular, also had this series. But, um, you know, I'll take Carl and then try to avoid the co- co- color commentary, I guess. Yeah, and. Mark Jones, I feel like he stresses some weird things like Tatum's one of 13 and he keeps talking about he's had such impeccable rim reads. I'm like, how has he had impeccable rim reads? He's one of 13. I feel like that's something that they talked about, like in the pre broadcast meeting, like with Joe Missoula. So like he started saying that during the game. It's a weird and he's got some weird catchphrases. He always talks about talking to guys to shoot around. He must have got that from there. Yeah, and then he kept saying this other thing. He mentioned it a couple times during the series because I think they called two or three of the games. But one of the things he was saying is when Embiid dunked on somebody, is like he put him in the friend zone. I'm like, I don't, I don't really get how the friend zone. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that correlates to a guy dunking on you. How is, how does, how is that the friend zone? So I did think, and I, I'm, yeah, I'm, and I'm a fan of Doris. I think Doris is really good. I, I like Doris and. She she's actually been on Tatum too for like it, she's been very to your point she really likes Tatum but she's also been talking about the fact that he he wasn't pulling up for mid rangers and that type of stuff so I I think Doris is really good when she's on there it's just yeah so the one complaint I'd have for both of them Chad and I don't know if you share this thought is why do they have to and by the way TNT has come back from breaks late like they've missed baskets they miss baskets which is just ridiculous to me and. They pay all this money for the drone camera, which was terrible. Maybe don't pay for that and come back from break on time. You'll be fine when it comes to that. But the other thing I would say, (laughs) it's annoying. Like you miss a point and we're watching the drone camera at some point. But I don't know why these broadcasts, these coaching interviews, which we get nothing out of. Very rarely do we get anything out of them. Why do you have to have that in a box on the screen when we're watching the game? Like nobody wants that when you come back from break. Like if you're going to do that, do it separate from the game. I hate one. I don't know why either one of the broadcasts do that. Well, I think Doc today was auditioning for a gig with ESPN or TNT next year. So that's that's probably why (laughs) they did it with him. I think the audition went well and uh, he'll probably land on one. Well, we'll hear him doing uh, these finals next year. But uh, 
17 to 33 in elimination. Oh, painful. Yeah. I, I liked him as the Celtics coach, but now I wonder what could have been possible. I think if, uh, you know, somebody else was the coach more than one championship, maybe, I don't know, maybe he was the right guy for that team. But uh, the other thing they do too, is they come back late from re- their own replays with it happened a couple of times <laughs> in today. They're showing a replay of, uh, you know, Niang grabbing Jalen's leg or something, and they come back and uh, Horford's three is dropping through the hoop. You know, that's not a real example, but it's stuff kind of like right. that. And, uh, it's inexcusable in basketball. In baseball at this point, you can kind of understand it with a limited time between pitches, but uh, you see how, like, Nesson goes immediately to commercial after the inning, inning ends. Joe, uh, Dave doesn't even tell you the score, but NBA yeah. broadcast, it's inexcusable. Yeah, especially when you're controlling the actual replay, too. Like, you know how long the replay is, and you're still playing it. We're going to miss part of the game. That That is very annoying. All right, that is Chad Finney. He's got a new story up at the Globe right now. Will 98.5 The Sports Hub's Toucher and Rich ever be the same? I encourage you to read that. Pay attention to what happens with this situation this week. Chad, thank you so much for the time, man. Enjoy the conference finals. Enjoy the Red Sox, which I didn't know if we're going to enjoy the Red Sox season, but I think we're going to have it if they can get this bullpen back on track, which had been good so far this season. Chad, thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. You bet, man. We are enjoying the Red Sox. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Chad Finn on the biggest story in Boston sports media right now, the situation with Toucher and Rich. And we are still celebrating after a game one win for the Celtics. Let's get to a couple of your calls. The number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? What's good, Brian? Oh, my God. What a game seven. Jason Tatum came out and had the performance of his freaking playoff career, I feel like. I mean, what a game. But still a lot of questions. Uh, we are still very stubborn when it comes to our offensive approach. We're not, like, great at adjustments, but our talent carried us through this Game 7, and we're still alive. Incredible. So I have two takeaways for how we win the next two series, especially against Miami and the Lakers if you play them. The Nuggets, a little bit of a different story, but, I mean, it all comes down to who's going to be guy number eight and who's going to be guy number nine. I think Grant has an opportunity to be big in pretty much all the series moving forward and all the opportunities because we need another guy to give Horford and Tatum and Brown and just we need more guys to be able to come in. And that could either be Hauser as the next guy if we need a ninth guy. And then the last thing I think that we need to do is we got to rebound the ball. We are a big team. We're going to be going up against, you know, just Bam really in terms of the bigs. Maybe Kevin Love, but, you know, we're a lot better suited to out-rebound them, which will give us more opportunities, more possessions. And then against the Lakers, we have to out-rebound them because they're a great rebounding team. 
the and then the Nuggets, like Jokic is a great rebounder, Gordon's a great rebounder. It's all about rebounding and then spraying the ball around because we will keep shooting. We're gonna keep shooting. So love the show. Can't wait to hear what you hear after Game Seven. But man, what a playoff run! Ups and downs. Just incredible team. Let's go get Banner eighteen, dude. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. Let's go. A couple of things. We'll scratch the itch on the Lakers and the Denver Nuggets. We'll get to that when they cross that bridge, right? Because you still got to get through the Miami Heat. As for the Heat, I'm going to do a big pod, preview pod coming up just on the Celtics and the Heat. So we'll get into that matchup. But I will say just in terms of just giving you a little bit, I'm concerned about the BAM matchup. I think BAM's quickness against the Celtics bigs could be an issue. We've seen it be an issue in the past. And obviously, you're always worried about Jimmy Butler because that guy is such a big-time performer in these playoff games. So it's definitely a concern. But in terms of the adjustments, I would totally agree with you when it comes to they don't make a lot of adjustments. Today they did, though. In the Game 7 performance, we saw what Tatum did. Four straight possessions, they went right at Joel Embiid. You made Philadelphia switch their scheme, and then he hit Al for a couple of four-and-three opportunities where those led to open three-pointers that Jalen Brown knocked down. So I think today was the one game where we did see some adjustments from the Celtics in terms of the offense. We saw the defensive adjustment in game six, throwing Rob back in there, but also getting Tatum the ball in the post. So I thought they certainly made some adjustments in this game. Whether it was just Tatum, those are just reads, whatever it was, it clearly worked from an adjustment standpoint. In terms of the eighth, ninth guy, I don't really feel like you need like Grant to come in and give you scoring or anything along those lines. Maybe you can get some timely minutes Grant on Bam in the next matchup to me it's more important that Derek White gets back to being the guy that we saw at the beginning of the postseason and Brogdon he picked it up in the second half after a bad first half but basically what they need is one of those two guys to be going in each game and it could be Brogdon one game it could be White another game but they need one of those two guys to be going and what we saw in the first half in game seven Brown and Tatum carried them in the first half but that to me is the more important thing is one of those two guys has to get going all right who's up next Brian Joe from West Virginia I got to tell you, I'm super excited after that game. Your guy, Jason Tatum, went off of 51 points. And I got to say, and I'm from a different era. And when a generation ago, Larry Bird was like Mr. Boston Celtic. You can ask your boss, Bill Simmons. He, he would know. He'd probably pretty much say the same thing. Jason Tatum has just reached that level, in my opinion, as far as, and I'm like an old school guy. So it's really a, a heavy compliment for Jason Tatum because he's been just terrific in game six to get it to game seven. So now let the fun begin and let's go see. Keep the faith. Thanks, Brian. Take care, man. All right. Great stuff as always, Joe. And I would say I agree with what Chad said. We should look at it as the last five quarters, the 67 points in the last five quarters for Jason Tatum because that fourth quarter in game six was so massive for him. That wing three over Embiid really got him going. I'm not getting into the Larry Bird conversation yet. We're talking about a three-time champion. We're talking about the last guy in NBA history to win an MVP in three consecutive seasons, going back to 84, 85, 86. So I'm not getting into that conversation, but certainly a big step for Jason Tatum. And I do truly believe that this has been, and I know it's not crazy to say the 51 points is best postseason game of all time, but you could argue for that 46-point game. I think that was more important, as I mentioned off the top, but this is just incredible. And he... We ha- even like that game where he scored the 46 against Milwaukee, he didn't change what Milwaukee did defensively. He was just hitting crazy shots in this game. This game sh- sort of shows the maturity of Tatum as a player where he's a much better 
facilitator of the offense that he's been in previous seasons. And when you have to change your scheme to the other player, that's when you know you're in trouble as a team. And that's what happened to Philadelphia. That to me is the difference between Tatum in this game seven compared to game six against Milwaukee. He was running the entire show, right? He was leading the dance. He was doing all the playmaking stuff, making everything happen. So that's where he is now compared to where he was a season ago. All right, great stuff, Joe. Great stuff on the calls, guys. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, you certainly can. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts or questions to offthepike at gmail.com. All right, so just to get you guys updated on what we're going to do schedule-wise, we're going to have another pod that comes out on Tuesday morning. We'll give you a full preview of the Celtics and Heat series. And then we'll be with you after the game on Wednesday night, after the game on Friday night. So early Tuesday morning, early Thursday morning, and we'll have one early Saturday morning after that game two Celtics and Miami Heat coming up on Friday night. So that would be the schedule for the pods this week. Thanks to Chad Finn. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat with you guys in a couple of days.